The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, stop verbing your nouns and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. And speaking of non-sequiturs, this is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 208 with guest Scott Guthrie, recorded live Thursday, December 14, 2006. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and now offering a whole suite of on-site and remote classes in .NET 2.0 technologies. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who refuses to have three good jokes in this intro, Carl Franklin. Happy New Year, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the first episode of year 2007. Hi, Richard Campbell. So are you enjoying being five years into making the show now, Carl? Absolutely. It only gets better, doesn't it? It certainly does. And I can't wait to get going. You know, we had a nice uh, couple weeks off, and now it's time to get back in it. Let's start with an email, the first email of 2007. Richard. Well, I got to pick a fun one here. This is actually from one of my countrymen. This is from Hemel Deshmuch from New Zealand. And ah, I was yes. Re- I'm originally from New Zealand, so yeah. um, I still got the family farm down there in Tauranga, but uh, I know I sound like a Canadian now. When did you move to Canada? I was three years old. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it's a long time ago. And you've been back? Oh, yeah. I've got to go back and visit regular family still down there. Wow. So, uh, and uh, get tried to spend some time with Chris Old. I've never managed to do it. He's the RD down in New Zealand. Never managed to spend time with him down there. Hmm. But uh, that'll happen eventually. Well, let's read this email here. Hi, Carl and guys. Greetings from New Zealand. After listening to 163 episodes of DNR, ow, <laughs> and some Hansel minutes, I happened to stumble upon a non-pwop podcast. Man, the sound mm. quality sucked. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. That's not our fault. That's not our show. <laughs> Until then, I didn't realize the amount of effort and time you put in to ensure the excellent audio of your shows. Yeah. Keep up the good work. Cheers, Hemel. And I'm just looking out the glass and Jeff just took a bow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, 
Hamill, if you heard all the outtakes of us recording, yeah. even just this intro. That's right. <laughs> it's it's really something. We do edit a lot. We're on take and- 99 right now. <laughs> T- take 47. Let's go again. <laughs> it's true, though. We do spend what to some might seem an excessive amount of time uh, making it sound good. But, you know, it just makes the whole experience that much better for everybody. Well, and I think it's one of the things you and I have in common is we're pretty anal retentive about the quality of audio. And most people just don't care. They no, but you know, when it's good, enough. you can tell the difference. I think Hemel just had that experience. No, I mean, most people who produce podcasts just don't care. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I meant. Okay. Yeah. Well, they don't have the time or the money or whatever. All right. Well, here's uh, one from a, uh, a friend of ours, Allende Rahin. And Allende, I'm sorry if I'm butchering your name. He's from uh, Israel, I think. Jerusalem. Okay, and he says, Hi, guys, I just listened to your number 206 show with Ted Neward, and I was more than surprised to hear his comments about ORM again, Object Relational Mapping Systems. I commented on his uh, post about the Vietnam of Object Relational Mapping, and I still hold my position on the subject. He is flat out wrong. I do not know what tools he used or used to use in the past, but... I'm a member of N-Hibernate, so I feel that I speak with some authority in the subject. He mentioned two problems specific to Hibernate. One, a single table with a primary key and a blob. And two, generating a table from the mappings generate all nullable columns. And the first is an option that is useful for some very specific scenarios. Those using it throughout the system are making very bad use of both the ORM and the database. I would seriously question the quality and common sense of any architect who approves such a design. The second is simply the case of not configuring Hibernate properly or not using the best way for a certain feature. I'm using all those sorts of pitfalls, in quotes, that Ted has mentioned, I have deep inheritance hierarchies in my objects, and I've been doing this in a very complex domain, in a big project, and we're very successful with the ORM implementation. We've been able to do quite a bit more because we're using ORM, and we can do things at a higher level. This isn't any test case. Real app, real project, real users, with real annoying demands. (laughs) You know... This sounds like a bitch slap smackdown. We got to have him on the show. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what. Why don't we get Allende on his own show? We'll bring him on and talk and hibernate. Yeah. And if we can get that tension going, we'll bring them both on for the Duke out session. We'll give him some boxing gloves and tell him to go to town. Well, and I read Ted's blog post on the Vietnam of object relational mapping. And honestly, the thing's a book chapter. It's the biggest blog post I've ever seen. Yeah. But the comments were larger still. Hmm. So he's definitely hit a nerve. I mean, he's taken an interesting position. And on some days, I agree with Ted because ORM's got its issues. Well, he's touching pain points, right? I mean, for sure. That's what it's all about. You know, it's hard to argue with a guy who's been successful. So let's bring the successful guy into the fold and see what happens. Very good. Well, uh, Richard, let's uh, just get right on to our guest, our esteemed guest from Microsoft, Scott Guthrie. It's been a while since he's been with us, and we're glad to have him back. Hi, Scott. Thanks for coming back. Hi. Thanks, guys. It's uh, great to come back. It is great to come back. (laughs) You never really went away, um, but it's been since before 2.0 shipped, ASP.NET 2.0, that that you've been on the show. Yeah, it's been been, uh, 
Yeah, I guess it's been a year, so yeah. yeah. So so a lot has happened since then. Uh, ASP.net, uh, probably the premier platform for hosting websites in the world, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it's been it's been a it's been a pretty wild year. I mean, I think um, you know, done it two o shipped a little over twelve months ago, and uh, sort of excitement and and in particular the customer adoption has just been fantastic. Yeah, you know, in many ways, sort of surpassed or even wildest expectations. Uh, and so, it's, you know, it's, I've spent a lot of time over the last year, kind of, uh, you know, working with customers and talking with customers, and you know, it's just been really exciting to see some of the really cool apps that have been developed and deployed. Now, Scott, you must have some amazing stories um, from all these customers. And, and when you say customers, you mean like the big guys. Uh, what are some of the what are some of the biggest success stories that you've heard for ASP.NET 2.0? Uh, yeah, for ASP.NET 2.0, um, you know, I think probably the, the biggest uh, customer in terms of traffic uh, is uh, MySpace. Ah, yeah, MySpace. They, they actually, believe it or not, went live uh, on ASP.NET for all of their servers. All their backends are in ASP.NET now. Um, wow. Actually, right before we shipped to us. So they actually went live on the release candidate. Wow. And, <laughs> yeah, which is, which is bold. Um, and they've just really had phenomenal success on it. This month, that, that's they, taking the go-live license very seriously. Taking it very seriously. <laughs> this past month, uh, they just passed Yahoo to be the number one trafficked website in the world. Unbelievable. Uh, Amazing. And they're doing, I think, Two to two point five billion page views per day um, now through ASP. Did you say billion? Billion, yeah. It, oh my uh, god! They handle in peak times, I think, uh, four to five million simultaneous connections. Oh my um, gosh! Wow! It's just you know, <laughs> a lot of online users. Any idea what kind of gear they're running to handle that? Really? They have a fairly large data center. Um, it's actually so. It's the, the cool thing was so they switched from another technology, and, and one of the cool things was that their their server load uh, actually dropped, um, I think by in, in, by two thirds. Wow! And so you know they were actually able to you know, use a lot less hardware than they had before, and you know what it provided was a whole bunch of you know, headroom because they've been growing phenomenally, um, and. Uh, you know, really catapulting them. You know, there's sort of one of the giant success stories on the web today. So that, that, that's a cool question. Do you think that's because of HTTP sys and the the architectural decisions you guys made with IIS6L? That really... Uh, well, certainly, it's certainly some of the connection management decisions I think we made yeah. at sort of the, the kernel level certainly helps with a lot of the simultaneous connections. They actually were, as part of the conversion, they were running Windows Server um, with a different kind of dynamic web framework uh, running on top of it to begin with. Hmm. And and then they moved over to HTTP. So the, the two-third drop in uh, load uh, or, in, you know, in server usage was actually, you know, more in the ASP.NET tier side uh, than even in the kernel level. So, uh, so wow. yeah, it's, it's, been, you know, it's been pretty fun to see, you know, you're able to take some of the vanilla features, uh, you know, that we ship in the box that, you know, all of our sample sites are built with and, you know, be able to actually run a, uh, a service of, of that huge capacity with that kind of mission critical uh, need. So, so that that's been kind of a, a huge highlight story. And I think actually, you know, one of the other fun things about them has been I don't think they've ever needed a QFE or a hotfix. Really, so and then obviously they you'd take their call if they had a problem. QFE we being would, quick yeah, fix yeah. engineering. <laughs> I thought I'd just... we, would, we would take we would take their call if they had a problem. But you know, the nice thing has been you know from a 
uh, you know, quality perspective, it's, it's been you know, just super successful and they've been very happy. So that's, that's one that's been really fun. You know, I think one of the things I enjoy about my job is there's so many different customers in so many different segments and, and they're not all like MySpace and giant and huge. You know, some of them are, um, you know, just, you know, personal sites or, uh, you know, small company sites. And, and, you know, that, that's, that's really fun to see. And I sometimes get more of a kick out of those than even, you know, the giant sites because, uh, you know, there's, there's a developer behind every one of them. Oh, absolutely. And, and of course, MySpace is that big social site. So that's really focused on massive numbers of simultaneous connections. But I I know I've seen great ASP.NET sites that while they don't have a huge user count, maybe they're totally internal, are really innovative in the way that they present, provide information for an organization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think uh, there's a whole bunch of sort of interesting ASP.NET Ajax sites that uh, both internally, both externally, but I've seen some really innovative internal ones uh, that people have been doing lately. Hmm. Um, you know, that also kind of take the, the user experience to the next level, which is pretty cool to see. Now, I tend to still call it Atlas, but I know the official name has changed now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, Ethernet Ajax used to be called Atlas, and um, and it's it's basically a release that's going to be uh, we just shipped the release candidate in December, and the uh, final release. Should be coming out within uh, a week or two from when this show is actually broadcast. So hopefully and sometime January 2007. Yes, yeah, yeah. So basically uh, early uh, to mid January 2007, uh, the V10 release will be will be done and out there, and it's going to be a fully supported release. So you know a lot of people often ask, well, what does fully supported mean? That, that basically means you get full product support just like you would for regular ASP.NET. And so, you know, if there's issues, we'll release service packs or QFE or hotfixes. And anytime, uh, you know, during the day or night, you can call up Microsoft and get uh, a product support engineer on the line to help. So Right. So this is not just a little add-in off on the side. This is part of the mainstream product from Microsoft. Yep. Good to know. Yep. And, and obviously, it'll be included in the upcoming Orcus release of ASP.NET and Visual Studio as well. So... But, but the nice thing is, Ethernet Ajax works on top of VS2005 today. It works just fine um, with ASP.NET 2.0. So, you know, you don't have to wait for another major release. You can take advantage of it and begin using it immediately. And, if, I mean, everybody's heard the term Ajax, and they certainly, there's lots of cool outside apps. It doesn't surprise me that it's very popular internally because the big thing I see with people using Ajax is it gives web apps more of that Windows form feel, that very interactive behavior without the postbacks, without the page repaints. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I often kind of differentiate Ajax scenarios in kind of one or two buckets, one of two buckets. So one is what I sometimes call kind of server-side Ajax. And that's actually the more common and certainly the far easiest usage of Ajax. And basically what I mean by that is you're keeping all of your logic still on the server. So right. It's, it's still very much a server app. It's still posting um, back. It's just that the result is uh, it doesn't refresh the whole page. Correct. Yeah. And, and, and what usually happens is uh, when you do kind of, a, you know, when, when you basically post back, rather than return sort of XML data that you then run a whole bunch of clients at JavaScript with, Instead, what you typically are returning are HTML snippets. And, you know, either you write JavaScript yourself or an Ajax framework takes that HTML snippet and basically inserts it into the page in the appropriate place. You stuff yeah. it in a div tag. Yeah, in a div tag. And so the end user kind of thinks, oh, this, the UI is smooth. I didn't see a postback happen. 
you know, right. it, it's kind of nice. And one of the things that's, that's great about ASP.NET Ajax is the fact that you can take that technique and add it to a page without having to write any client-side JavaScript code. Uh, you just basically can put, you know, for example, like an update panel control on the page around certain server controls and, you know, immediately kind of Ajax enable your site. And so it's, it's from a, from an easy use perspective, it, it doesn't get much easier than that. Yeah. And, retrofitting uh, an existing app with this technology should be pretty painless. Exactly. Yeah. And it works, you know, it works on all browsers. Um, you know, so we, 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 uh, you know, added Safari support, you know, works obviously in IE and Firefox. Um, and, and, and we also have, uh, some Opera support. And if you want to, you can go even further and write in what I kind of call client side, uh, Ajax, where you're using more heavy JavaScript and you're using JavaScript functionality, but you don't need to unless, unless you, you want to do an effect or to really push the boundaries. You, you can get a lot of value out without even having to write right. the JavaScript. So Scott, so, w- w- in addition to Ajax, um, what's, uh, what are you working on these days? I mean, it seems like, ASP.NET 2.0 comes out in Ajax and Atlas. I guess you call it ASP, uh, Ajax for ASP.NET. What what else is there? I mean, where are the, where are the new frontiers in ASP.NET these days? Ah, uh, you know, there's there's lots of uh, lots of cool stuff coming. I mean, one of the things that we've actually done, um, which is kind of a it's less of an individual release and more of a continual thing, is kind of looking at how do we kind of respond kind of very agilely. Um, the customer feedback and kind of you know, how can we do sort of mini releases of functionality that you know people can take advantage of immediately without having you know to, to wait for a big upgrade or to a new release. The and three so, you know, yeah, of instead things- of waiting for three here's some. I mean, really, Ajax falls into this category. It's a significant feature. Yeah, and it's yeah. nice that you're providing it to us now rather than waiting for three Exactly. Yeah, and, you know, and, and there's other ones that we've done. Uh, yeah, one of the things from from an ASP.NET perspective is something we call the CSS control adapters, which give you the ability to um, kind of tweak the HTML that comes out of standard ASP.NET server controls to be kind of pure CSS friendly. So using divs instead of tables and style sheet, external style sheets instead of inline styles. Um, so that's a release that we, we finalized last month um, and shipped on the web. And... Uh, you know, obviously, things like the web application project model support and VS and the web deployment project model, you know, for, for, uh, uh, you know, integrating within Visual Studio. And then, and one of the things that we shipped, uh, this past December 2006 is a database, uh, publishing wizard that, um, makes it really easy when you're developing a web app to go ahead and generate, uh, .sql install scripts, uh, for any of the database projects you're working on. So this is not actually installing SQL Server, but the database model and information that you need to put on the SQL Server on the ISP site? Correct, yeah. I'm, so I'm tending generate- to think of this in terms of I'm using a third-party ISP, and I want to be able to deploy all of this stuff from my ASP.NET site to it. Exactly. It works with both uh, hosting sites and even for internal servers. And it will actually generate like a .sql script that contains both the schema as well as optionally all your data. Really? Um, and so, yeah, so you can just basically, you know, copy it onto a box, run the script, and away you go. And that's and a lot safer then, than the the transfer, the MDF approach that, that we've tended to use just because it's so reliable. Exactly, yeah. The, the, the .sql um, has a benefit. One is you can, like, check it into, you know, version control. Yeah. And actually do comparisons and diffs and things like that. And and then also from a hosting perspective, hosters typically don't allow you 
to upsize a, a .mdf file directly for security reasons. Right, yeah, it's, um, it's a little dangerous. Yeah, whereas pretty much every hoster will support executing a .sql file. And then to make it even easier, we're, we're, we're providing kind of a back-end uh, publishing service. So if your hoster supports the service within Visual Studio, you just right-click on your database. And this is a custom service? This isn't WebDAV or any of the sort of standard methods that's specific for transferring the data? Yeah, it's sort, of, it's sort of a, you know, it uses kind of web services. Right. Um, so, you know, it uses kind nice. of a standard protocol. But, it yeah, it provides kind of basically a simple way to you know, type in your server name, boom, your data is deployed along with the schema, and you can also extract the data in the schema as well. So it you know, makes, makes it much easier for hosting. That's very slick. So, so we've been doing we've been doing a lot of releases like that uh, uh, during this year, and, and you'll you'll continue to see them uh, uh, ship next year. Um, and then you know, in terms of coming things coming up, uh, uh, you know, one one of the big things that we're spending or I'm spending a lot of time on is is looking at um, this new technology that's coming out called WPFE. Right. Uh, which you know gives you a way that you can go ahead and very easily add kind of much richer graphics and video and media support uh, into your web application. Now so, I know you can't say this, but we can. This is the flash killer. <laughs> uh, well, I wouldn't necessarily. <laughs> I know you wouldn't say that, but, like that, but uh, but I mean uh, that's you know you're sort of going after that market of uh, you know what what Flash does well, which is vector style graphics animation very low very small footprint download uh for the player you know um that kind of that kind of experience yeah i mean it's it's a cross platform uh cross browser uh kind of runtime that that yeah absolutely gives you rich vector graphics um animation support um you know as i mentioned sort of media visual supports so you can kind of you know, play a video that's rotating in an animation that's translucent with graphics overlaid on top. Wow. You know, it makes sense that this technology is bundled under the name WPF, but is it actually got some common code base to WPF? Yeah, well, the WPFE name is, is sort of in quotes. It's, it's a code name that we're going to replace with uh, hopefully something a little bit cooler and easier to remember in the spring. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm happy to encourage you to move away from the WXF terminology, please. But it, it actually does share uh, the same common technology with the full-blown Windows Presentation Foundation. Right. Uh, engine. So it, it, from a graphics engine perspective, you know, uh, uses sort of a very similar code base. And you know, more importantly, it supports kind of this common markup format we call XAML. Right, which yeah. uh, allows you to kind of define graphics and shapes and declaratively persist controls, and so you know you can you'll be able to use a common set of tools in order to target it. And I think what really kind of differentiates this from say other technologies is there's a really you're going to be a very rich development model behind it, and so you know it's not just about kind of you know dancing uh, hippos, uh, you know gyrating on a website. It's you know it's, oh it's man, hey hold on, I, I got to make a phone call. <laughs> Let's take down the dancing hippos. No more dancing hippos. <laughs> and, and actually, when you connect it with Presentation Foundation, you start thinking about all those new Vista-like controls and look and feel to a UI and bringing that capability to the web. But I get the sense that it's more than that. Yeah, well, I think I think it's it's, uh, it's both the look and feel, but also you'll see, um, you know, we're going to be adding kind of much kind of richer, you know, kind of programmatic support. And you know, so hopefully you get you get kind of the, the best of all worlds in terms of 
you know, a seamless deployment model. It integrates very nicely into uh, web applications today. You'll be able to use it inside of any ASP.NET app. Um, it's not server-specific, so you can also use it in other non-ASP.NET apps. Um, and, you know, it, 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 it's, it's going to be a pretty exciting technology. And so you'll, you'll hear a lot more about that over uh, the coming year. And this is um, a client-side library. Yeah, it is a client-side library. And so uh, it, it means that you can basically, in a consistent way on the client, because it, you know, it is cross-platform and cross-browser, go ahead and take advantage of this functionality. And How, yeah. one of the things that we ran into with Ajax, and pretty much every Ajax framework is kind of running into this, is there isn't kind of any good way in the browser today to generate vector graphics. Um, there isn't any good way to consistently play video or do animation. And depending on your browser, you know, your animations might or might not work if you try to do them in pure JavaScript with HTML. Right. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons why we saw kind of the need for WPFE was to, you know, just enable these types of experiences without developers having to spend weeks and weeks trying to get the JavaScript just right and working on all different browsers. And Well, Scott, a number of times I've found sites where the the animation or the video and the audio are out of sync. Yep, it's just really tough to make those things right. Scott, I did a project with, um, uh, I can't remember what the acronym was, but it was basically an IE-only technology, and it was uh, vector graphics that you could program with JavaScript. Yeah, it's probably VML. VML, that's what it was. Yep. And uh, it, it worked fine, but as you say, uh, it was an IE-only technology. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yep. we were yep. actually doing real-time graph data points asynchronously and and I think this was on this had to be on a Windows 95 box and there was no web server so I basically wrote a web server for Windows 95 to be able to do this those were the days <laughs> Scott I mean we all know uh, you're you you're one of the founders of ASP.net but you work on a lot of other things including ISS IIS, sorry, I'm thinking. Yeah, Space yeah. Station. I basically I run the teams that build uh, obviously ASP and ASP.NET, um, uh, IS, uh, Common Language Runtime, the Compact Framework for mobile devices, uh, the Windows Presentation Foundation, and, and WPFE, um, and Windows Forms, uh, Commerce Server, and a few of the Visual Studio tools. Yeah, so what I, don't I kind of, you? What aren't you in charge of? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> It keeps me busy. Um, but, uh, <laughs> Pretty much yeah. everything .NET. Not everything, but 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 quite a bit. So uh, it's it's fun. It's a fun kind of area to work in because it's you know, it's developers and and. Um, are you yeah, so are, with all this technology, Scott? Are you working at a higher level now than you were before? Are you more like in a management direction architecture role now, or or do you um, still get your hands dirty? Oh, I still definitely get my hands right. I've been I've managed uh, a couple different teams and projects now for a couple of years, so it's 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 not been kind of any sudden nothing new uh, job change. But it's uh, um, yeah, it's it's uh, I still spend a couple hours a week uh, in kind of deep architectural reviews, and and I still try to make sure I, I write at least an hour of code a day. That's good. That's good. Just to stay connected with it all. Yeah, I think one of the things in the developer space is uh, your development is moving so quickly that if you you know don't spend you know a couple of hours, uh, you know whether it's a 
day or, or you know, a couple hours a week actually doing real development, you quickly kind of can lose uh, touch of, of what's going on and, and, you know, frankly, what are the pain points and, and what, what can and can't you do with the technology today? Yeah. So I, I, I actually find that the funnest part of my job. So I definitely like uh, uh, that aspect. This, uh, I you know, shifting gears a little bit, we've heard some from some of our more, you know, uh, hardcore ASP.NET guests that uh, one thing that people are talking about at conferences and seems to be a hot topic is doing some asynchronous stuff on the server side, uh, which is a little bit more difficult. But um, and I haven't really explored this all that much, but. What uh, what's that all about? Like, what are some scenarios where you would actually need to do server side async calls? I mean, because it seems like a a, a call to an ASP Net page is is a synchronous thing. You your browser is waiting for a response. You know, are we are there other things that have to happen simultaneously on a server before you can send a response? Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's, it's it's a it's an interesting question. It's one of those things that. A lot of people tend to get uh, often confused about it, and so people end up misusing the feature sometimes. It's a very powerful feature, but so I can try to explain it at a high level. So, from a performance perspective, um, you know, or from a web technology perspective, when your when your browser is connecting to the server, it is connecting in a synchronous way. So, it's sending an HTTP request, and it gets back a response, and it's all in one kind of connection. Um, on the back end server side. Uh, you can you can process requests in a couple of different ways. You know, one is you know as each one comes in, you can basically just execute them serially. So if you have ten simultaneous requests coming in, you do one, then two, then three, then four. The downside is you know when you get to number ten, the, the tenth user has been waiting quite long on on the server for the response and right. the, doesn't look good. So what ASP.NET does by default is we manage a thread pool on the server, and so if multiple requests come in. We will uh, go ahead typically and schedule those requests to be processed on different threads, and we do all the thread management for you. Um, and so, you know, from a developer perspective, you can just be oblivious. You just, you know, execute the request, and, and we handle kind of the scheduling. And if you have kind of like a multiprocessor box, so say you have two processors or two cores on your system, you know, we'll schedule different threads on different processors or on different cores. Um, so all that sort of standard vanilla ASP.NET. Um, one of the things to kind of, uh, you know, when you think about scheduling requests is how many requests should you process simultaneously? So in other words, if you have 10 requests come in simultaneously, do you spin up 10 threads and have all of them run in parallel? Or do you spin up four threads and do four of them and then another four and then another two? And, you know, it's, a lot of people just sort of intuitively assume we should just spin up ten threads and do them all at the same time. Right. The downside with yeah, the downside with doing that though is your your CPU can end up uh, do what we call thrashing, where you're just context switching between requests left, right, and center. And so the actual more energy of the processor is dedicated to switching between the threads than actually executing the threads. Or if you have some exactly. disk heavy uh, stuff that's going on, right? Yep. You, yeah. Yeah. And. and you know, and so a lot of kind of the, I'd say some of the, the deeper architectural magic inside ASP.NET is figuring out how many requests to execute simultaneously and which ones. And so we, we have a lot of kind of um, uh, pretty fancy logic to kind of look at the workload on the server and kind of tune the thread pool based on what the server load is coming in as. 
and, and that's one reason why HPX you know, can handle MySpace is because it, it does a lot of that logic and does it very well. Um, one of the things that you can do as a developer is when you think about your application is thinking about kind of, you know, how often are you going from the application to a remote server and waiting on something? Yeah. In other words, if, if you have a database or you have a web service that you're calling, if you have an app and you basically, you know, you call it to get some data, you're typically call, often calling that by default in a very synchronous way where you're waiting on the database to return, you're waiting on the web service to return, and you basically block that request from doing any meaningful work on the CPU. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, .NET Rocks would not even be possible today if it weren't for the great support of our first sponsor, Data Dynamics. And their product is the one that we really love, Active Reports for .NET. It's easy to use, it's powerful, you just create the reports, you put them right in your assemblies, and you ship them with your code. They have uh, HTML and PDF support. They've got an excellent access upsizing wizard so that you can get your access reports into Active Reports for .NET. Uh, works for Windows Forms, works with ASP.NET. It's easy, and it just works. And best of all, it won't break the bank. And that's what we love about Data Dynamics. Data Dynamics has got a lot of other great tools, too. And you should check them out. Please check them out at datadynamics.com. I'm just thinking it's very clever of you to anticipate those things and optimize for them. I mean, the normal way would be that there'd be a set of switches, essentially, that I, as the operator, can then tune them. You're doing that dynamically. Yeah, we do that dynamically. And so without you having to do anything, you know, we're, we're doing some magic behind the scenes to try to optimize it. What you can do, and this is where asynchronous programming comes into play, is you can optimize it one step further. And basically what you do is when you call a web service or you call, say, for example, database, you can actually say, this is going to take a while, so I'm going to relinquish the worker thread. And in other words, I'm going to basic, you're going to basically return the worker thread to us for us to schedule another request. And uh, when the data comes back, we'll then go ahead and give you another thread and let you continue. And this is sort of where wow. the sort of asynchronous programming comes into play. Is this and the benefit um, is, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the, well, the benefit is if you're calling a lot of web services heavily, and there's a lot of latency on those web services, meaning you know, it takes a second or six, 600 milliseconds for a web service to return, um, and you have, say, you know, every you know, three or four web services and you're trying to process 1,000 requests a second, um, using this kind of async programming where you kind of relinquish the thread to us allows us to basically scale the server much better. So it's, it's an advanced sort of feature. Um, you know, unless you are uh, heavily kind of um, IO you know, uh, blocking bound on, on remote services, right. typically don't recommend using it because you can often get yourself in more trouble than not. Right. For example, if you need the output of one web service as the input to another or something like that, that can... You can actually use this feature with that. Okay. So what you do is you'd actually you'd call the web service in an async way, relinquish the thread, we go process something else. When the data came back, we'd call you you then go call the second web service, and you could do that also in an async way. And when you come back, we'll render the page. And this is all done with callbacks, I take it, or is yeah, it done with? 
Are you using yield at all for this? Uh, I don't think. Good question, actually. I don't think we use yield. Um, oh, because it's available I, now, and yields available of, now. Yeah. Okay. Um, we we kind of use the standard .NET async pattern. Great. Um, and and it works with any provider or any data source that implements the async pattern. Cool. So databases now support it in two o. Uh, web services even supported it in one one. And the cool thing is you can use it with ASP.NET Pages now. Uh, in one one, you had to implement like your own HTTP handler in order to take advantage of async functionality. Hmm. Now any standard page can use it. And so we're one one place you know thinking about for for users that that might be interested would be in a web part scenario. If you have lots hmm. and lots of web parts and some of those web parts are pulling data from different web services, you know, that, that's an interesting place where async can potentially give you some nice performance. Yeah, I can imagine. That's really clever stuff. I, I just I get I get chills when I think about how cl- tricky that is. I, I wouldn't want to try and debug it because if it doesn't go well, it's really not going to go well. Yeah, I mean that's that's the one thing you want to be careful of with the async stuff is you know don't don't overuse it because uh, you know it you know it does add you know a little bit of uh, you know additional work to your code, but sure. you know, from a, a high performance standpoint, if if you have a server that has a lot of load and you're seeing, you know, you know your server's CPU's utilization being low because you have, a, but because they're blocking on things, you know, this is a nice tip to, to take advantage of. It's, you know, I think one of the things that we've always tried to do with ASP.NET is, you know, make sure that the 90% case just works super simply out of the box. Yeah. And always give you the headroom for that 10% case where you want to do something advanced. And, you know, the async stuff is, is a great example of that where, if you really want to go further, you absolutely can. And on the surface, um, you'd think when I think somebody doing async calls from a web from within a web server, this is a circumvention. This is you compensating for some issue around ASP.NET. In reality, it's just cooperating, helping ASP.NET do more for you. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. It's and, and it's it's uh, yeah. And it, it basically um, you know it just gives you extra kind of control and hints over kind of how requests are scheduled. And yeah, it's a way you can basically indicate in your code kind of what your intent is, and we can basically schedule around that. And again, the beauty is the default thread pool does a whole bunch of kind of smart scheduling for you. And so, you know, 99% of apps, you shouldn't ever need to use this. You just fine. But when you get a MySpace, you don't need special builds. It just works. Exactly. Hey, Scott. What uh, can you tell us something that has really impressed you lately? I mean, it must take a lot to impress you. <laughs> but if you see an innovative um, application or website or something like that that you really say, "Wow, now that's just beautiful and elegant and innovative," ha- has that happened recently? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's. Um, I think. I think the thing that's actually uh, that I've been kind of most uh, impressed with is, um, you know, I mean, there's lots of cool apps out there that. that that have impressed me. Um, you know, I, I was at the Ethernet Connections Conference in Orlando um, this past spring. I, I'm going there again, I think, in March. And you know, I went to Disney World, you know, uh, while I was there over the weekend. And, you know, one of the cool things is is the, uh, I think it's the Fast Pass, fast pass Ticket System. Oh, right. Um, speed is, Pass, is it? No, Fast, yeah, fast Track. Fast Pass, 
Yeah, or it's, or it's one of the one of those. Uh, it's one of the systems and, and and some of the devices that people at the park actually carry around. So if you look at the device, well, first of all, let's uh, tell people what it is. You can instead of standing oh. in line for hours and hours, you go get a ticket for a particular time, and then you stand in a shorter line at that time to get on the ride. Isn't that right? Yeah, yeah, and it's and there's you know there's Disney folks that walk around and they can help you and. You know, they can take kind of, you know, census and they can tell you how long it's going to take to go from here to there. Right. You know, it's, it's kind of a cool system. And, and uh, so I was just talking to someone a couple months ago. And they said, oh, you know, that's all built on .NET 2.0. Wow. I said, really? <laughs> and and it's, it's, it's using compact, uh, the compact framework on some of the devices that, that the Disney uh, uh, park uh, folks are, are oh, carrying Oh, right, for the handhelds. That's awesome. Yeah, the handhelds. Yeah, so, so a totally was, you know, internal app. I mean, it's not ASP.NET to the world, but within Disney, they're relying on ASP.NET to make that whole thing work for them. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure how all the back end works. I know definitely on on the devices, the compact frameworks there, and then uh, I, I I know Disney does use ASP.NET uh, for some of their systems. So it's but it's you know it's one of those kind of cool kind of oh you know you wouldn't have thought of there'd be .NET running in you know in uh, in Happy Land. In Happy Land, Magic Kingdom, uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, so that that was kind of a cool, uh, you know, kind of oh, that's, that's pretty cool. And that is I pretty think cool. Some of the things you're going to see over the next uh, next year in terms of some of the graphic capabilities and kind of the ability to kind of introduce graphics and express, um, you know, kind of user intent and just kind of add some some real excitement and kind of wow factor to standard applications is going to be pretty exciting. One thing that uh, came came into my mind while you were just talking about WPFE is is this a scaled down version of WPF? Is it easier? Is it less powerful? Is it more powerful? And if it has all the features of WPF, wh- uh, why do, would we would we be using this in Windows forms as opposed to WPF? Or you know, is it just one of those tools that's more appropriate for for websites? What's the diff? Yeah, yeah WPFE is, is sort of more appropriate for uh, for websites. It's, it doesn't have all the features in WPF. Um, you know, WPF is a very very rich um, UI you know framework, um, and and you know the richness comes with the size uh, of you know the install. And so you know, one of the things that we try yeah. to do with WPFE is sort of stream streamline it for web downloads where it's kind of on demand install. Um, yeah, right. The, the same way that other control environments, when you have a special control on your page, you got to go get it. Yeah, the very first time, and you, you want it to be, you know, uh, you know, the WPFE download today is one megabyte total. Um, nice. And uh, so, yeah, you know, so it's, it's a it's a fairly tight, but it, it it does use the same vector graphics engine, the same controls, same brush strokes, and things like that. And so, the one thing that's nice about vector graphics that I don't think people have internalized yet is. You know what it provides in a uh, from a screen and from a, a usability perspective in terms of capabilities. Mm. So if you think about like a, a Windows app today with Windows Forms or with Win32, you know your your you know, the, the image dot pitch and the look and feel of the control is is very fixed for you. You can't, for example, like blow up the size of the tree view and have it look good. Um, whereas in a vector graphics world, you can actually do zooming. You know, zooming of data and transformations of data without having to worry about a loss of fidelity. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, I was just seeing a pretty, pretty wickedly cool app yesterday, where it was sort of a, a class browser scenario where they're you know, 
implementing the ability to kind of look at .NET classes um, in a kind of graphical way. And the cool thing was they were able to sort of zoom in and zoom out in kind of real time. And, you know, it looks as, you know, pristine when the, you know, the name of the class is, you know, four inches tall as it does when, you know, it's an eighth of an inch. Um, Mm. And, you know, it's it's just sort of interesting ways to visualize information. And I think, you know, .NET developers are really going to be able to take advantage of that, both in WPF, um, but also in WPFE going forward. Of course, lots of folks are going to have access to WPF coming into Vista, which uh, at this point is still not officially released to the public, but the developers have all got it, and we're wrestling around with some of the challenges. Uh, of course, tough part being a developer is working in studio with Vista, and I, I think you've been dealing with that issue as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, Vista is a you know is a is a very major upgrade in terms of an OS. Uh, I've been running it since June, and and really love it. It's it's uh, um, it, it, it's a pretty big release in terms of capabilities. Um, you know, the one caveat is you do want to make sure your drivers have been updated. So, so many Microsoft doesn't actually make any device drivers. Uh, you know, the third-party uh, device manufacturers make them, and so they're they're sort of slowly coming out. So as long as you're, yeah, I was going to say they has all the devices. They're slow. the The drivers are coming out much slower than 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 Vista. This is this wasn't the case with XP. Actually, no. In XP, the, the drivers took much longer to come out. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's uh, you know, we can't remember way back when when XP land, but yeah, the the percentage of systems that have drivers for Vista is actually at launch will be much higher than at XP. Um, and it's, wow. it's something that Windows kind of wrestles with. It's the oh. challenge when you're a device driver manufacturer, and, and this is one of the reasons why developers go, well, oh, you know, the drivers aren't already now is because Vista doesn't actually officially launch until the end of January. Right. You know. Uh, well, we're having launch events, but it, it won't be available to consumers, is what you're right. saying. It won't be in the stores. Yeah, and so that's that's really the time frame that all the hardware manufacturers, you know, are, are going to push to make sure that their their drivers are all up to date. Now, that must be a really tough thing, you know, with betas, and you know, especially betas that have been as long as Vista, where um, you know, they're they're RC one, RC two, all these different versions come out months before. Uh, the 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 main thing because you want to give people visibility into what you're doing, but at the same time, you you see articles in the press about you know how the troubles that they have with Vista and they're all device driver related. Yeah, it's it's definitely um, you know, it's definitely a, a challenge. Uh, you know, because you guys you know, from a it makes you guys perspective as well as reliability perspective. You know, right. Device drivers make a huge difference. Yes. And, and our memories are short. The early days of XP were tough days. Yeah, I just don't remember that, apparently. Yeah. yeah. Well, the problem yeah. is that XP is now so mature and works so reliably that we've forgotten. We don't have to think about it anymore. Maybe that's it. Yeah. yeah so you can even see now, if, if you have Vista installed with Windows Update, you'll start to see kind of, you know, the driver updates are coming out and, uh, you know, that, that esoteric. USB thing you had plugged into your system that didn't work two months ago. Yeah, you know, magically starts working today or something. You know, and, and um, you, you should see. I think I think by early spring you, you'll see uh, pretty good uh, device driver support. I mean, most of the people that I read, you know, from a blogging perspective, that have had issues with Vista in terms of driver compatibility, for the most part now are are up and running just fine. Um, so it's uh, so, so even some of the folks that I know had issues in the past in terms of getting the drivers working. Um, 
you know, everything's working out. You know, when I installed on my laptop, uh, every single device just automatically Came identified and worked. Yeah. You know, the setup now is about 20 minutes to install uh, the OS. So it's, it's a fairly quick setup as well. Good, good, good. So the big challenge, I mean, one of the big changes in Vista has been the security model and this whole getting serious about not running as administrator. Yeah, so by default, when you're on Vista, you do not run as an administrator. Um, and even if you add yourself into the administrator group, um, by default, uh, you run under something called UAC. Uh, right. I think it's user access control. And so even if you are technically administrator on the machine, uh, it'll run you as kind of normal, as a normal user, and then basically prompt you to elevate when you need to. In other words, if you go ahead and want to change something in your control panel settings, Right. Uh, it'll prompt you before it opens the thing to say, do you want to run with admin privileges? Yes, no. You hit yes, and then you're running as an admin. And, um, and it should be noted that for, for people who run in safe environments where they're not out on the Internet a lot, you can turn those features off, right? Correct. Yeah, you, you can absolutely go into the control panel, and there's a, a UAC switch setting. You just say disable, in which case you're, you're running just like you were with Windows XP. Right. where you're full admin on the box and, and there's no prompts ever. Scott, is it um, possible to say, I always want to run IE7 as a, a limited access user, but for everything else, I want to be logged in as administrator? I believe that there is a way to do that with IE. IE has a, a thing called low rights IE. And so you can actually run the IE process in a low rights environment, but keep all your other processes running using a normal account. It seems I guess to I me that's that a might be the default. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so if you're worried about, you know, phishing or any spyware or something like that, that's definitely something to look into. Um, you can also actually run a, uh, run with the kind of normal user reduced trust account. And then when you launch an app, you can actually just right click on it and say run as administrator. And up you and go. Then, and then there's yeah. no prompts within the app. It's, you know, just running kind of as an admin. I also have found over the years that even if you are running with, less privileges than administrator, software developers of mainstream products still develop their applications to require administrator access to the most mundane of features, which forces you to either run as administrator or to not use their products. Trillion is one that comes to mind. I've mentioned before, the last time I ran Trillion, I tried to set it up for my daughter because she has friends who use AOL and Yahoo and stuff like this. And uh, you can't add a buddy to your list unless you're running as an administrator. You can't add it, a buddy. It's fascinating. Um, you know, even if you say, "Oh, I just want to turn off these," you know, the UAC prompts. Eventually, try running it for a couple of days. One, because I think you'll find over time, uh, you know, Vista actually doesn't prompt nearly as much um, as you might think. The other thing that's just fascinating is when you're running an app to go. Why the heck does it need admin for doing this? Yes, yep. And you'll be amazed as you're running an app. When well, like, it, huh, I see part of the problem is that generally you have to be an admin to develop. Like, just the requirements for the development environment are very high privilege. Yeah, typically if you're doing kind of debugging another process right. or if you're doing profiling or something like that, then, yeah, you do need to basically have administrator privileges. Which really looks like a virus, you know, down deep. <laughs> the ability to, to you know, access, manipulate another process. What else does a virus do? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, and that's, that's why we will prompt you. Um, but, 
Yeah, and, and so for v, Visual Studio, um, Service Pack 1 uh, that came out in December, um, obviously includes, includes tons of fixes for uh, you know, VS2005 running on XP as well as Vista. Uh, we're also then doing a, uh, a separate uh, a patch or what we call GDR that you can download off the web that specifically uh, tweaks VS to work well on Vista. And so, you know, it actually introduces elevation prompts in the right place um, and, uh, you know, make sure the profiling works on Vista and, um, uh, you know, some, some IS7 integration features and things like that. And so it's, uh, that's, if you're running on Vista, you do want to go ahead and download that patch. Um, in December, we released a good version of that patch. Um, and, you know, partly we're just, we want to get sort of some more feedback because there aren't that many developers doing hardcore VS2005 work on Vista yet. So we're just waiting, you know, an extra month or so to make sure any other reports that come in, we get included in that patch. Yeah, I can um, see that. It's just going to take a while for everybody to get to that point and yeah. uh, and figure all these things out. It's not, it's not simple. It's a complicated process, all those little bits. Yeah, and then we'll basically release that, the final version of that patch in, in the next month or so. Yeah. Hey, Scott. What uh, what's the status in, of adoption of click once? How's that going? Uh, feedback so far has been has been uh, very positive as far as I can I've heard. Um, I, I run into a lot of companies that you know that have debated: Do I go with a web app or do I go with a client app? You know, from a user model perspective and from a development perspective, they might want to do a client app, but the deployment characteristics are what you know tempts them towards a web app. Um, and so ClickOnce obviously gives you the ability, you know, you get kind of the web deployment characteristic and auto-update, but have the full client support. And, and so far, you know, I, I've run into lots and lots of customers that are pretty aggressively using that. Um, I, think, I think we've seen actually with .NET 2.0, WinForms adoption, you know, ASMIT adoption has been great, but I think WinForms adoption as a percentage uh, has increased significantly over, say, WinForms 1.1. Huh. In large part, I think because of click once and data binding, uh, also very very cool. Yeah, yeah, and it just sort of increased maturity there. So, uh, yeah, that's definitely uh, popular. I think you know, I think we're looking at for Orcus adding click once support, so it works in Firefox as well. Oh, um, good. <laughs> and uh, you know, and and you know, you'll see continued kind of improvements in, in click once and in client development. Very good. Uh, it may just be for me one of those things where. Nobody's really talking about it, so either they're, they they must be working great, you know. It's one of those features I've I've used it personally in one of my projects, and and I've had no problems with it. So yeah, it's it's uh, it's, it's it's kind of it's always interesting um, when you talk with someone who's uh, you know having an issue, or you know if I'm helping someone debug something, uh, and and you know I, I have a fairly popular blog, and so my you know I might get. Twenty or thirty emails a day, you know, with people asking for help on on certain issues, and you know, sometimes, sometimes you know, you kind of go, "Gosh, you know, if you've answered the same question three or four times, mm. like, oh boy, you know, no one can figure out how to use this feature." Mm. Um, and occasionally, people will send me their projects, and you, sometimes you open them up and you, you realize, like, "Oh my gosh, all the features they're using—it's amazing!" You know, yeah. just how rich these apps are, and and you know how much of uh, you know, features that I always thought were esoteric or something, you know, boy, they're used all over the place. Mm. And, and, you know, that, that's, that's always kind of a, kind of a real fun thing for me is to actually see how all these features are being used. And sometimes features that you don't hear much about or, 
you, know, you kind of think, well, maybe it didn't quite take off the way we expected. Yeah. You know, are deployed all over the place. Yeah, sometimes people just use the feature. It works. They don't talk about it. They don't fight. You only hear about the stuff they're having problems with. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So many features <laughs> uh, just work, and we use them and never think about it again. Right. Yeah. Um, so, what about expressions? The the whole expression suite's coming along pretty nicely. Very uh, of exciting. Course, this is key to the WPF WPFE movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we've tried to do with uh, um, you know .NET and with kind of the overall Microsoft platform in the last couple of years is is really think hard, not just about the developer, but also about the designer. Right. And I think you know I, I'm very much a developer um, and don't really have much of an artistic sense myself. Um, and and so, you know, I always think of things very much in a kind of a development frame of mind. And, you know, I think one, one challenge when you're working on a large project or you're working even on a small project, you know, the user experience and the aesthetic really matters. And, you know, we need to make sure that from a tooling perspective and from a platform perspective, we really make it easy to have... Uh, you know, something that not just looks aesthetically good, but also from a usability perspective and from an experience perspective, you know, ultimately makes employees more productive when they're using your app. Um, and that's that's a big goal of kind of our expression suite is to kind of provide, um, you know, a suite of designer-focused tools that work seamlessly with .NET projects. So you can use the expression web designer to open up and edit ASP.NET projects. And it supports master pages, Including nested master pages, it supports CSS, it supports you know, you know, pretty pretty much you know anything that you need in order to go ahead and edit and work on a website. Ne- right? Did and nested you, you master with pages? Visual Studio Open. Did you say nested master pages? Yeah, yeah. This is so something I haven't feature. heard before. Yeah, with with, with ACM master pages, you can actually have a master page derived from another master page, and so you could have like kind of an overall site look, you know, with the top company logo. Oh, okay. Then you'd have a two-column and a three-column layout, right? And, and have those be implemented as master pages. I get it. Well. And, and VS two thousand five unfortunately doesn't give you WYSIWYG support for that. Uh, Expression Web Designer does, and the next version of Visual Studio will. Nice, well. but uh, but um, anyway, so that's an example: of Expression Web Designer, and then Expression Blend and Expression Design, and Expression Media also uh, are focused on uh, you know more of the WPFE and the WPF scenarios. And uh, give you kind of nice media support, and give you, you know, kind of really rich uh, XAML editing, and uh, you know, allow designers to kind of really participate in the workflow. Fabulous! Well, I can't wait for it. Uh, it's very exciting to me. The big thing I think we're going to see with Expression is that's sort of the bridge to Orcus, which is, I guess, eventually will be ASP.NET 3.0 is part of Orcus. Uh, yeah, we haven't finalized on the exact version string. So we're right now just calling it kind of ASP.NET Orcus. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that will be coming up. Um, you know, that, that, you know, for me is going to be one of the highlights of 2007 is the Orcus release. And obviously you're going to see kind of, um, ASP.NET Ajax integrated into ASP.NET Orcus. Right. You're also going to see, uh, really rich link support. Uh, yeah. and so, you know, I think from a, from a programming productivity perspective, Having kind of a built-in OR mapper in the box, and more importantly, having kind of a, a language uh, support like Link for easily working against OR mappers, whether it's ours or someone else's, um, you know, really is going to bring you know just just makes you so much more productive as a developer because so much of your your day to day is spent doing data access. 
Yeah, well, um, yeah gluing plug- controls to data. Yeah, gluing controls to data. I think the other exciting thing about the ORM space is being able to think about how you conceptualize data beyond just queries and updates. Right. You know, in other words, you know, being able to say, here's a customer object, and here's how it maps to the database, and here are the business rules I'm adding to the customer entity. And it's not a case where I'm adding kind of validation and logic separate from the entity. I'm actually baking it in to the entity. Mm-hmm. And that way, regardless of how I get an access to a customer object or how I update it or how I try to delete it, I have one set of consistent business rules that'll execute. Yeah, it's an interesting thought. Of course, as a data guy, I immediately think it's a constraint on a column, but that's still going to allow somebody to enter something incorrect into a text box and fire it to the database before they find out they crashed into that constraint. Exactly. Yeah. So you can, I mean, you can absolutely um, uh, do constraints to the database layer, and by default, link for SQL and link entities will just pick up the, the constraints you've specified in the database. So, you know, it's not replacing what you do with constraints in the database. Right. But if you, there's certain types of rules that are sort of more business rules that you can't uh, express using SQL constraints. Yes. And so, you know, like say, if, uh, depending on what state the guy's in and the state that the product is in, the tax rules are going to vary. Exactly. exactly. Or, you know, don't allow someone to order more of this item if there are already four items in stock and we have a price cut coming. You know? yeah. Right. Um, and that's the type of stuff that with Link, you can express at the entity level, you know, in two or three lines of code and, and bake it in at the entity level. So it's, it's not UI specific. It's not tied to a form. It's not tied to a specific app. You know, it's very much at your middle tier layer that you're baking that logic in. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. then you can bind to it against any UI and you can manipulate it and all that stuff. But it's, it's a much more clean place to put your business rules and, um, I think it's going to lead to much better architecture. You know, it sounds a bit like uh, CSLA.net. Have Have you uh, looked at Rocky's architecture at all? Yeah, yeah, no, it's um, it's uh, yeah, yeah. CSLA CLSA.net is uh, is a great business framework, um, and uh, there's a couple other really good ones out there as well. Um, you know, what we're trying to do with Link is is not not actually replace other existing business frameworks out there. You know, by separating out kind of the querying and the language capabilities from the actual underlying data provider, mm. you know, in theory, you should be able to use Link against LSA.net. Sure, right. Or use it against Paul Wilson's OR mapper or use it against, um, uh, you know, LLB Gen. Um, you know, so, you know, it's, it's, I think that's kind of architecturally one of the interesting things we're doing is, is not baking in a specific OR rule system into .NET but actually built, baking in kind of this generic link querying system. And then Old Private, by the way, providing a built-in implementation that you can take advantage of if you want to. Um, but you could just as easily use link capabilities against other providers as well. Well, I think the idea that it's going to be able to pick up rules from anywhere and then apply them to everything accordingly, you're right. You only have to write the rule once and it shows up everywhere it needs to. It's going to make for a lot cleaner code and a lot more sort of declarative coding that this is my object and here are the rules and how you use it is up to you. Yeah, and I think from a developer perspective, um, it, it also means from you know, as you're evolving your app or, you know, you know, I think a lot of times when we start an app, you know, we'd love to say we have everything planned up, up, up front and know exactly what we're going to do. No, the reality is you know, as you're working on a project, new rules or new reports or new, you know, 
The yeah, reality is you're always wrong. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, you know, anytime you, you bake your validation in at the UI layer or at the business facade method that's actually accessing your data, what happens when you don't use that UI again right. or, you know, you're going through a different method? Oops, you got to make sure you either copy it or refactor it. You know, this gives you a much cleaner way that you can you can put it in the right place, uh, which is at your domain model level. Right. And then, regardless of how you access it, you can you know you, you can uh, uh, be ensured that you're going to have consistent results. Well, and the massive benefit to that is in the change. When that rule is modified, it needs to be modified in one place, and it affects everything. You don't have to hunt it all down. Exactly, and it also means from a development tool perspective, or from a development team perspective, if you have say four people working on a project, one of them can own the domain rules. And not have to, you know, worry about code reviewing the work of the other three in terms right. of exactly how they're using it. Pushing the you rule know? to the UI guy, pushing the rule to the data guy, and so on. Yeah. So I, I think, I think from a productivity perspective, Link is uh, the biggest thing that's going to come out in 2007. And then you're going to see really great tool support for, you know, all of this work with the next release of Visual Studio, the Visual Studio Orchestra release. So, you know, we're, we're baking in ASP.NET Ajax, which is great. You know, we're adding JavaScript IntelliSense support. We're adding uh, kind of mm. the ability to declaratively on a page and inside the, the page designer add AJAX uh, capabilities to existing controls. Um, you know, much richer CSS editing and kind of WYSIWYG designer, much better JavaScript debugging. You know, so it's it, the end-to-end experience you're going to see, you know, not just at the framework level, but also the tool and the framework really uh, hopefully you know, be massively improved. And that will be a fine, fine day. <laughs> I, I was just thinking JavaScript debugging. Isn't that an oxymoron? Yeah, that's that's quite interesting. But more and more people with AJAX are are doing it's, JavaScript um, yeah, it's, it's more intensively, stuff. more intensively than they ever had before. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, you know, and just being able to in a running app, um, you know, even if it's not JavaScript you've written, but it's JavaScript emitted from a control or something like that. Right. You know, being able to easily step into and see kind of what's going on. Wow, the hour has just flown by, and uh, I just can't thank you enough for keeping us up to date on what's going on. No, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And we'll have you back near the Orcus release. Yeah, I'm feeling kind of guilty. I think, I think once a year is often enough, Scott. I think it's got to be more often than that. Anytime. All right. Well, thanks, for, uh, thanks again, and we'll see you next week on .NET. .NET Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com slash dotnetrocks. .NET Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maciolik, that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl Never Sleeps. .NET Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back. Toy Boy!